Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. for the well-being of our congregation and constituencies. And we just pray that you will be with us in this dialogue, that it will be the beginning of some well-needed changes, that this crisis will not be wasted, but this will be the catalyst for a, uh, a, a more equitable and just society. We thank you, O Lord, and we claim it done. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And then once we go in, we'll also ask you to do an opening prayer, but that was really important too. Uh, thank you for centering us. That was just, and, and so great. And then Christian, you and I have worked together so long that you'll just know when you want to say something, you say something and just, we'll, we'll just, we'll figure it out. Sounds good. Great, so now we have about 122 people joining us right now. We're just gonna wait a little bit and see how things are going and to allow everybody to get themselves uh, in the room and then I'll get us started. Um, and uh, what I tend to do, just for those of you who are waiting, I just kind of wait for people to, to find their way online. And when it hits a certain point, I then start us up. And we're still climbing. People are still joining us right now. This is just the nature of Zoom. It's like watching people file into a lecture hall or something. Um, uh, particularly when we're dealing with the numbers we're dealing with. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today, folks. As I was getting ready for this, um, this, this webinar, I, I actually found myself um, reflecting on a psalm, Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good it is for people to live together in harmony, or brethren and sistren, depending on your translation. And um, I, I took that psalm as a bit of a promise, as well as um, something that has happened in the past through the blessings of God. It's something of a promise for us as we deal with this topic of rebuilding community in light of COVID-19. And I am incredibly grateful to have people who I consider to be uh, uh, people who are community builders and leaders in the different uh, areas that they are. I am incredibly grateful to have Representative Mari Minujian, who is our local state representative and who is a, a wonderful friend and counselor and someone who I um, am grateful for. Uh, thank you for being with us, Mari. Thanks for having me. And uh, we are also incredibly uh, happy to have and honored to have Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, who has uh, made time in his busy schedule to be with us for this incredibly important conversation. Lieutenant Governor, we are so honored to have you. Thank you for being here. Well, it's my honor to be here with, with everyone who's participating in this conversation. And then uh, I have as um, our other panelists uh, on, this, uh, on this webinar, uh, two uh, leaders, uh, one who is new to uh, Michigan uh, and was 
uh, consecrated bishop on February 9th, uh, Bishop Bonnie Perry of the Episcopal Diocese of Michigan. Uh, bishop Perry, you've done an incredible job as uh, recently a, a reporter contacted me and asked me for a quote. I thought it was amazing, but they didn't print it. That I said uh, that she is leading us uh, through these rough waters uh, as the skilled kayak, uh, kayaker and coach that she is. And so we are so grateful for the incredible leadership that you are bringing to the diocese, even though you've been here uh, a hot minute. So uh, we are also grateful uh, to have with us my dear friend and brother in Christ uh, and my collaborator in many things, uh, sacred, um, the Reverend Charles Christian Adams, who is the pastor of Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, which is an incredible uh, church and one that is dear to my heart, almost as dear as Christ Church Cranbrook. And uh, my name is Bill Danaher, and I'm the rector of Christ Church Cranbrook. And um, we're and I have in the in the background we have Meredith Skaronsky, who is going to be managing all things and is a, an incredibly valuable and resourceful member of our staff here. So welcome to you all. And as we um, get into this, um, uh, this webinar, I've asked uh, the Reverend Adams to open us in prayer, and then we'll go into the questions that we have prepared. Let us pray. Our God and our creator, our sustainer, Amen. Thank you so much for that, uh, Christian. Unfortunately, I think you were putting your, I think you, uh, your mic got a little bit covered, but, uh, and I won't even attempt to summarize it, but truly the, the person who needed to hear the prayer did. So um, we, that's, that's, a, that's what I'm going to, that's gonna, what I'm going to take to the bank tonight. Um, but that was beautiful from uh, what I could gather. And I want to begin uh, with uh, just a, a simple uh, 
way to begin. And I'd like to begin with the Lieutenant Governor. Um, you have a faith story. Your mother is the uh, a minister at Tabernacle uh, Missionary Baptist Church. You had a uh, religious upbringing. And um, what, in what ways is your faith journey part of your uh, life journey today? Yeah, I appreciate you uh, asking that question. And it's something that has certainly been anchoring in my life. Yes, my mother is a, is a minister at Tabernacle. My dad is a trustee. That's the church he grew up in. It's the church that I grew up in. And, you know, the person who really mentored me as a leader uh, and a speaker is uh, the Reverend Dr. Frederick G. Sampson, who was the longtime leader of Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church. And I mean, I remember as a kid being in his office between services where he would welcome uh, young people to just kind of sit in there with him as he was, you know, drinking some water and having a snack between services. And he would just drop all of these just boulders of wisdom on us so effortlessly. And, and I remember that and just taking all of that to heart. And so, you know, what the, the way that that really drives or, or is part of my public service is that one, it reminds me that humility is the most important characteristic of a leader because it causes you to uh, be inclined to listen rather than to speak and to, um, and to welcome rather than to push away. And then the other piece is that, um, we all have roles to play and that, you know, my, my certainly faith upbringing um, showed me that everyone has different strengths and everyone has different assets and different capabilities and that it's our responsibility to find the ways to draw those, uh, draw upon those from other people so that we can work together um, in the best harmony. So um, that, that's what I try to think about um, as often as possible um, when I'm faced with choices as a leader. And I, I think that it's helped ground me and and prepare me uh, for this role. And, and certainly as we face something that none of us have neither lived through nor led through, um, it, it, it is a constant reminder and a, and a constant grounding influence in these times. And I've had some uh, benefits of being part of the special uh, uh, briefings that are given to religious leaders. And you've taken a major leadership role with that uh, through, I think, Deanne Williams is the person who you work with. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about what 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 you are doing with those leaders and how that how that particular portfolio came to you? Yeah, I think that um, it's very important. I mean, certainly faith leaders, uh, many, many, many people in our state look to their faith leaders for guidance and counsel in normal times and certainly in extraordinary times, people are relying upon faith leaders. And so our administration thought it was really important to ensure that those leaders, leaders such as yourself, have important, credible, current and accurate information that you can then share with the people who rely upon you. Um, what's also true is that, you know, people look to their faith when things get tough. And this particular, you know, situation has made the act of congregating difficult and dangerous. Um, and so I have really also wanted to challenge faith leaders to find ways to innovate in how they serve their people, um, mm. because that's what they are doing as servants in their own right. As servant leaders, you have a flock that you're responsible for, and it is your responsibility to find ways to serve people in this time of need to make sure that people are able to not only cope, not only to pray, but also so many faith institutions are providing direct service to people. And so 
figuring out a way to deliver those services to people that need them and depend on them in ways that are safe is frankly a, a, a challenge that faith leaders in the state of Michigan have stepped up to. And I'm really proud of that work and proud to, to work alongside and make sure that they have what they need to be successful in it. Thank you so much. I want to turn to uh, Representative Mnugin, who is our local representative, a friend, and someone who I am so grateful that she could make time to be here tonight as well. Um, and I know from your, your background and the conversations we've had that you have a robust faith life. And as we go, folks, I just want to let you know, um, those of you, uh, we have a lovely crowd tonight. Thank you so much for being here and being part of this and participating. We have questions and answers that you're gonna be able to ask. And those are the ones we're gonna be going to. And for those of you uh, who are looking at your screen, it's at the bottom of your screen, you'll see Q&A and, and you can type your question in there. And then when we get to the to right place, we will, we will, um, uh, we will have, a, uh, we'll have some opportunities to pick up those questions. And we may not be able to get to every single one of your questions. Uh, but we will try to, to answer them. So going back to Re uh, Representative Mnugin, um, I, if you could talk a little bit about your faith life and how that continues to um, motivate and, and inspire you and guide you. Sure. So um, as you can probably tell from my last name, uh, Mnugin is a pretty obvious Armenian last name. So um, my background is, and my, my faith is really grounded in the Armenian Apostolic Church. Um, and there's actually two of those in the Metro Detroit area. The one that I attend is in Dearborn. And um, I grew up uh, in, in the Armenian community and a lot of that is grounded in faith. Um, we were talking before we got on this call about um, some experiences I had attending an Armenian seminary in the summertime when I was in high school um, and really getting the opportunity to study our faith and our, our traditions. And a lot of what it really, really moves me to think about is um, just that, you know, all of us are sort of called to step up in this time and in whatever way we can. And I think about, you know, I didn't ever think I was running for office to govern in a pandemic, um, but this is sort of the, the times that we are in. And, um, you know, I heard the call to serve just as you heard the call to serve in the way that you do. And so this is sort of, you know, it was, I think it's probably, for me, it's a much more general, um, a general way that I feel grounded in my faith, um, obviously in a very personal way, um, being an Armenian means being an Armenian Christian. Um, and so, you know, aside from the issues of, of governing and all of that, a lot of what I think about is sort of the trajectory of our people and how fortunate I am to be in the position that I am in. Uh, coming from, you know, three generations ago, they, the Armenian genocide, like almost wiped my family out. And here I'm an elected representative. And so I always think about that as sort of a weight that I carry with me and just what a, uh, what an opportunity it is to be a representative, not just of my district, but also of my culture and how important it is um, for us to lead by example. You know, it's, it's funny you should say that and just to do a quick follow-up, I mean, the churches of the East, um, which, which uh, Western Christians really need to know better, have an incredible uh, centuries long um, uh, history of working with uh, not having political power and negotiating pluralism. Yep. And um, I've always found uh, many of those writings uh, starting in the eighth century, um, just being, being, they have a completely different flavor from Western Christianity. And, and it really is, uh, it's an extraordinary tradition 
Um, and did you, when you went to seminary, did you get immersed in any of that background or how did it? What did yeah, we so we spent um, a lot of time, um, you know, in the early part of the morning, we would do the morning prayer and all of that. And um, usually, in, you know, and in our custom, um, women have a much more limited role in the formalities of our traditions, which is um, something I've always wrestled with, um, obviously, as, as a strong woman in our community. Um, but it's something that, you know, we would do early in the morning, and then we would have sessions about the history of the church and the history of the involvement of the church in the expansion of the Armenian Empire and all of that. And it was kind of, um, as someone that enjoys history and politics, it was such a, for me, that was something that really allowed me to um, find purpose in understanding my faith traditions and my culture's traditions, um, where some, uh, some of the other uh, kids that I went to seminary with were very much grounded in the service, in the actual carrying out the service itself, um, you know, having the opportunity to learn about the history of our church and the importance of um, just the importance of community in our, in our, um, in the Armenian American community here in particular was, um, and the community is centered on the church in particular was really important. Yeah, I was reading an article the other day, and we'll pivot in a moment, this that the um, just having a knowledge about your traditions gives you resiliency, psychologically speaking. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, of course, your tradition is like like it's like double resiliency, right? <laughs> the tradition itself is is completely resilient. Uh, right. Well, and I'll I'll wrap this uh, question by saying like you know one of the things that I've I've talked to um, not just the faith leaders in the Armenian community, but just uh, you know just people I'm friends with in the community, people who, um, you know, we're in close contact with, whether they're family friends or people I've met along the way in running for office, um, that the Armenian, and I imagine that this is the same way for the African-American community and for others, we're really like tactile culture. We love to hug each other and like be around each other all the time. And like, even like my like guy friends, they sit like side by side, really close to each other. And like when they're hanging out and stuff and this um, disease has really like blown a hole into the way that we do our, the way that we practice our culture and trying to figure out how we're going to, as an Armenian American community, as a broader American community, um, celebrate these cultures and traditions that are super important to us and that really give us purpose um, by, but also not spreading this disease. It's been a really big challenge. And so that's the kind of message I've given to, especially to the Armenian community, when we talk about like our faith is what kept us together during the Armenian genocide, which we're celebrating the commemoration of that in a couple of days here. Um, you know, we're thinking about like just how important it is for us to respect the social distancing measures um, and how important it is for our churches to respect those as well. Well, that, I mean, these are all, these are, this is getting us going in the right direction. And um, uh and I, I don't want to take us away, but we do have some questions that people are going to ask that are going to move us to try to bring together both um, the concerns of the church and the work of the church, which is really important, and also just how how we as people of faith can understand and and serve within the public sphere. And one 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 thing that has come up, and this is something that my parishioners ask me, and I'm sure um, uh, uh, the same is for both. Um, uh, Reverend Christian and, and Bishop uh, uh, Perry is uh, there are people who are economically suffering as a result of the shutdown and, and even social distancing 
uh, can be seen as a privilege that people, many people cannot afford to do uh, easily. What, what, uh, what assurances can you uh, political leaders offer to the people uh, who are suffering now? And, what, and what, how can we work together to ensure a speedy return to work? Sure, I can take that first. And you know, this, this challenge of having to uh, make provision for people to be able to be safe um, from the, the specific characteristics of this virus um, has been the most important challenge because, you know, frankly, people come first and people are what matter. Whenever we're talking about establishing our new normal or, you know, re-engaging sectors of the economy or regions of our state, all of that needs to be grounded in the fact that people are our economy, people's confidence is what drives our economy and their ability to be able to, to be safe and feel safe um, is paramount. So that's what's grounding all the choices that we're making that we made thus far. And that's also why, frankly, some of the first actions that we've taken and that we renewed were focused on doing things like expanding the safety net um, in preparation for these unprecedented times. So that's everything from expanding access to childcare for the people who still are working in this time, expanding access to unemployment insurance and making people who've never been eligible for unemployment insurance eligible in the state of Michigan, expanding access to healthcare and ensuring that no person in Michigan, regardless of your, um, your, your employment status, your immigration status or anything in between would be um, denied uh, care as far as testing and treatment when it comes to this, to this virus that you would be discriminated against and then you would not have to pay for it. Um, making sure that all these things are, are possible and available to people in Michigan was paramount for us as we entered here. We also, however, need to make provision for people to do the things that we know will keep them safe. And so as part of the stay home, stay safe actions that we took, we recognize that when you're talking about social distancing, it's like impossible to social distance when you're in a place that doesn't have a lot of rooms or you're in a place that has one bathroom or you know one, one place to sleep. And so one of the things that we're focused on right now is how do we create provision for people to be able to isolate in a way that's safe. That's really important because there are three things that need to be true in any region or in any section of our state in order for us to think about responsibly um, re-engaging and emerging from the, the sort of stay home, stay safe era. The first thing is, um, well, actually there's four. The first thing is a significantly or, or observable decrease in cases, positive cases. The second thing, and this which will get us the first and understanding of it at least, is massively ramping up how much testing that we're doing in communities. We've done a lot in the last 10 days to expand the testing protocol for who's eligible and able to get a test. But the truth is we need to have two or three orders of magnitude more tests in the state of Michigan. And there are a lot of reasons why that's not true from the lack of a national strategy to constrain supply chains and everything in between. But nevertheless, we're working to ramp up that capacity every single day. And with more testing, we can have a better understanding of where the virus is present and how we can um, respond to it and treat it. The third thing we need to have available to us is something called uh, contact tracing. You may have heard that phrase. What that means is that if a person tests positive, we need to work with that person to understand who they have come into contact with so that we can talk to those people and get them tested to understand if they, their exposure has led to an infection. That matters because that is literally how the virus spreads from person to person. And we want to know and understand that spread, again, to understand the scale. And that leads to the fourth component, which gets back to where I started. And that's the ability and the infrastructure for people to be able to isolate or quarantine safely and have the provisions they need to do so. And so 
um, with, with that, without that infrastructure in place, um, we will not be able to contain that spread. So uh, we are looking at models that are regional or county by county in nature that will make provisions, particularly for those that are most vulnerable, people who are housing insecure, people who are low income, um, and others, others, first responders, actually the city of Dearborn has innovated um, the first uh, drive-through testing and first responder isolation unit um, at the Henry Ford Center for Performing Arts and our Center for Creative Arts. And I actually toured that facility on Saturday before it opened up on Monday. And it is responding to a need which shows that our frontline workers, you know, our grocers, our bus drivers, first responders, nurses and nurses aides, um, the people who work for the utility companies that are making sure we have lights and gas and electricity and internet to do Zoom town halls, um, these folks have an increased risk of exposure and they're concerned about exposing their family members. Um, you know, there was a little girl in Detroit who passed away named Skylar Herbart. Um, yeah. And her parents, both of them are first responders in Detroit. And a lot of them are concerned about infecting family members like what happened to that little girl. So um, we're trying to work to build that infrastructure so that we can have those things in place to then responsibly have a conversation about what economic re-engagement looks like. But that is all um, predicated upon um, us taking care of people first. We have a follow-up from the um, from the uh, 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 the the listeners that I would like to raise for you. It's from a friend of mine, Walter Brownridge, and he picks up on that by by saying, "What kind what kind of ways can the church be a bridge to lessen those tensions so that there is that 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 tension between you know safety and 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 jobs?" And you know, one of the things that we're doing is we we're trying to provide. Um, of the different responses, we, we want to try to house 274 people in Detroit and Pontiac for a week in shelters, just because uh, the cost of the shelters is so extreme. And that's 274 is basically what we can do with that, that segment. Um, mm -hmm. And I, and I want to open it up at this point before I, 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 I want to hear from uh, Representative Mnugin, but it, are there other ways that we can bridge that gap? I think, um, if, if the other uh, faith leaders want to weigh in. I mean, I yeah. think one of the big things um, is uh, the notion of, of food insecurity. And, and so, you know, that's something that we're working on in, um, in the Diocese of Michigan is putting together a matching grant so that we can raise, I'm hoping 200,000, we've got 155,000 right now. And we're going to distribute that money to the food bank distributors because with a million people unemployed, the notion of being able to have enough money to take care of everything and to get the food and with our food pantries really overwhelmed with the increased need, this is one way of us saying this is how we get money, a real reasonable chunk of money to the food bank distributors that get it down to the food bank so that our folks can get enough food because people need food to eat. It's very basic. Um, and I, I think that's one of the ways that we can really do this um, and, and make a difference. And uh, Reverend Christian. Hold on, I'm gonna help you. I'm muted. Yes, thank you. I take care of you. Uh, you know, I believe sincerely that if it's not practical, it's not spiritual. There's no conflict between that which is practical and that which is spiritual. Uh, there's no conflict between the church and the academy and the church and science and the church and politics because our faith 
is always understood through the interpretive lens of the context that it emerges from and it emerges from all of those contexts. Yeah. So to understand that uh, we have to be practical. So we, we closed our doors uh, upon the governor's uh, first order when she said don't gather in groups of 250 or less. We had two services on Sunday. Uh, that was very difficult to do but, uh, and, and Father Danaher and I talked about this, uh, it was the right thing to do. Uh, public health is a paramount issue. Uh, that is the, the whole point of everything that we're doing. So it was just inconsistent not to take that very bold step very early on in, uh, in, in the crisis as it became publicly uh, visible, but uh, we have, uh, we are making plans when uh, we do finally reopen uh, for uh, in-face, uh, in-person uh, worship and meetings to uh, have social distancing, uh, provide provisions like masks for people. Uh, right now we are providing food this day uh, between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m., we fed 140 people uh, who came to the church and received food in partnership with Forgotten Harvest. Oh, nice. Uh, also, also, we had a blood drive. We, we had 30 people. And I'll end with this. But it also must be said that we must hold our public servants accountable for the practicality of love. It, it, it's not a matter for me uh, of whether it makes sense to make sure everybody has equal protection under the law, to make sure that everybody has equal access to housing, to make sure that everybody has equal access to health care, to make sure that everybody has equal access to employment, to make sure that everybody has an equal access to education. It's a matter of love, but love is the most practical principle in the world. Yeah. And if we were more uh, uh, purposeful and thoughtful in doing that, we never would have had the uh, crisis in Flint. We, uh, we would not be sitting around scratching our heads at the disparities between what's going on in the African-American community and what's going on in other, com other communities regarding to COVID-19, the infection rates and death rates. And, and the bottom line is this, even if you can't understand the concept of, of, of equity and fairness and justice and love, you know that we're all in the same boat now. When I, I close with this, when I was a student at uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York, they had the West Nile virus. And uh, the mayor said that uh, we are going to spray the Upper East Side of Manhattan first, that the, the rent was too high there to allow them to be exposed to uh, the mosquitoes that are uh, carrying the West Nile virus. Now, the problem was this. 
The mosquitoes didn't know to stay in Morningside Heights. The mosquitoes didn't know to stay uh, in, in Harlem. The mosquitoes flew across the social barriers that we had erected and they realized that they had to provide as much prevention in Harlem as they did on the Upper East Side. And that's why I'm glad that we've got the leadership team that we have in place now. I don't believe in politicizing this uh, because we're all in the same boat, whether you're Democratic, Republican, Independent, whatever you are, we're all in the same boat. But I want to compliment the way the governor has gone about the, uh, uh, the, the, the facing of this uh, uh, pandemic and the lieutenant governor for heading up this task force that uh, is dedicated to uh, uh, facing the inequities that we have tolerated far too long. I, I think that uh, that is uh, incredibly important. I and I appreciate everything you've said and what you were saying. And initially, in terms of the decision to close, uh, you've been very kind and 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 talking about our conversations. I should probably close the the uh, the circle, saying that the reason why I was being so bold with you is I was having conversations with my bishop, and so uh, she and I were moving in that direction. So you were calling me at the same day. So. The three of us being here, actually, you can see who, who is the, Great work, the, the, real, real, the real source of all of this was that, you know, I, I was pretending like I was acting on my own, but we are under under orders in my church. And so, uh, but it, it was, uh, so you have you have really Bonnie uh, to thank for-, for Reverend Adams, that was the day that thank all you, of the bishops in the state of Michigan, the Episcopal bishops in the state of Michigan, that day, the day the first order went out, we shut 203 congregations, boom. And the one thing I would say, Reverend Adams, is I think we're all in the same storm, but I think some of us have better boats than others. And I think that's where the issue is. And, and for me, that is where my real conviction is. People ask me, where do you see God? And where I'm realizing is I see God convicting me for not having done more about the disparities that have been laid so clear, so plain. And um, Representative Mnuchin, when you're talking about um, not having the politics, you know, the Episcopal Church has. And, 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 and what I'm really clear about is this is the time that we need to own the power that we may have and exercise it to make sure everybody gets a better boat. Um, so I'll, I'll it's I, what I'd like to do is turn to, I, I know we want to jump into this. This is incredibly important. Everybody's asking questions. I, at the same time, I do think I want to turn to, to representative Mnugin for a second to give her, uh, some opportunities to enter into this conversation because one of the, um, one of the things because of, of, of who she is and where she's from and how she got here, people have made comparisons between. Uh, representative Mnugin and another young uh, representative on the national scene from the New York area. And, uh, and yet you, you, you don't see yourself as basically the Michigan uh, the state legislature's uh, version of uh, Alessandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez. You see yourself as your own person with your own kind of a, a view and approach and, and, and concerns about these things. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, I mean, with re with regard to COVID, I think the first thing I will say is um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is an excellent advocate for her district. And I've been following really closely um, sort of to, to parlay into the conversation we've had about these, about racial disparities, about major inequities. Um, she's done a really good job advocating for us to do much more on that front. So I would agree with her on that. The thing I will say is, um, you know, the district that uh, that your church is in, the district that most of you who are watching you live in, um, for me, what's really important is uh, getting things done regardless of political affiliation. And so um, one of the things I'm really proud to be working on right now um, in the Michigan House Democratic Caucus, we've started a downtown business coalition. And what we're doing is uh, going out into, the, into our community virtually and having conversations with business owners. Uh, in particular, I'm really interested in folks who own restaurants in the Birmingham, Bloomfield, and West Bloomfield areas, um, hearing what their situations are, what those struggles are, hearing from folks who work in those uh, restaurants as well, and working with uh, the lieutenant governor and the governor's office uh, with regard to the plan to reopen Michigan and what we're going to need to see um, in terms of not just financial assistance to our restaurants, but also understanding um, what will the future of social distancing look like and all of that stuff. And those are things that, uh, to me, they're not Republican or Democratic issues. Those are issues that impact everybody. Everybody's got to eat and everybody's got to put food on their own tables. Um, and so when we're looking at the way that we need to re-engage our small business community. Um, that's something I'm really looking forward to, to doing in a very serious way. Um, and we saw through the CARES Act, um, the issue that, you know, the issue that I really saw there was um, there's just such a, it was, it was so obviously um, distorted and get and the finances were really uh, given to um, given priority to major corporations in ways that we didn't expect them to be. Um, and so that was sort of, I think, you know, um, despite some really good efforts, um, that's a big challenge for us. Um, the other thing that I saw that was a problem there um, that I think we can go about solving in a bipartisan way is um, a lot of the state and local uh, dollars were really earmarked for populations of 500,000 um, or more. And so some of our cities in Michigan are just not, and municipalities are just not able to access those dollars. Um, and so these are some major struggles that we're seeing now in this sort of phase two of stay home, stay safe. Um, and it's something I really look forward to working with Lieutenant Governor and Governor on as well. I want to turn, thank you. That was, that's wonderful. And I, I, I want to turn and drill down on, on the incredible work that you've been tasked to do, uh, Lieutenant Governor, and um, to, 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 to start to get us um, deeper into the issues. I think I do, uh, I think everybody shares uh, the concern and everybody is wanting to get involved, but they go into some of the complexities around the disparities and inequities that are existing. One of the things that has, um, that is, we, we, as far as I've studied it, there are basically about six different dynamics that are at play here. Um, and these are revealed in part by just the, this, this, the, the normal baseline for African-Americans in Detroit, a uh, behavioral risk factor surveillance system that was done by the CDC a few years ago found that 30% of African-Americans reported that they were either having poor health or fair health. They weren't, they weren't, they didn't fall into the category of feeling well in the first place. So you had a pre-existing set of, of, of conditions that people were experiencing ahead of time that, that, made, that made them a bad risk in terms of how they would experience this disease. And part of that was because 
of the relatively few healthcare facilities or clinics where people can get access to healthcare in Detroit. Um, part of it is because of transportation challenges and the heavy use of public transportation in the in then during the pandemic for people who have to find their way to work. Part of it is the lack of health insurance uh, so that people can't afford the care that they need on a regular basis. Uh, part of it is reluctance because of the cost of healthcare and um, also um, the, 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 the self rationing of healthcare that happens, particularly for asthma, which is a major incidence within the African American community. And then, um, you know, other, other kinds of risk factors that are in, involved. Now, I want to uh, take all of those um, as indicative of some structural injustices. And if you can maybe connect all of those to everything that we're facing, the unmasking that's happening through this pandemic can maybe help us to see things differently. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, the truth is there have been disparate outcomes in health, education, um, economic opportunity when it comes to race and ethnicity for generations in Michigan and in the state of Michigan. I mean, and in the country, frankly. So. This is nothing new. I think what's unique is that COVID-19 kills people quickly. And so the, the mortality impact has been so much more visceral because we can see it in a matter in a matter of weeks. And so I think that's what has has triggered certainly um, you know, our administration has established this particular task force in response to COVID-19 to work to put immediate actions and recommendations on the ground to deal with that mortality rate. But this is certainly not the first time that our administration has tried to respond to, to disparities when it comes to race and ethnicity. Now, you talk about those structural things. There are many drivers for that. I mean, just straight up structural racism is one of them. And the way that that sort of insidiously, covertly or overtly has woven its way into a lot of the decisions that were made to put those um, structures and systems in place, the placement of facilities and care, for example, the meriting out of, um, of health insurance, the discrimination when it came to car insurance rates. And there are a lot of reasons um, that, have, that have led to those. There's some other things at play too. Um, when we talk about bias, when it comes to medical care, um, we have some particular and specific concerns when it comes to the to the metering out of treatment of testing and treatment. And you know uh, what I'll say about bias that is that is that is unfortunate is that whenever there's a choice point, there's an opportunity for bias to present itself. And so in this situation where we have had just just nowhere close to enough testing capacity in the state of Michigan, thanks to again a very limited pipeline from the federal government and difficulties procuring them from the private sector in the country and around the world, um, there were choice points about who should get tested. And all those choice points have presented opportunities for medical bias. So one of the first actions that the task force has taken is to do one of the proven interventions to deal with implicit bias, and that is to name it and to let professionals know that it exists and that they, that they may be acting upon it. And so our chief medical executive, Dr. Jonay Caldoun, sent a letter to every medical provider in the state of Michigan saying that, you know what, medical bias might be part of the reason why you've been making the choices you've made, and that has had let that has part of what's led to disparate outcomes. And so um, we've taken that action. In addition to increasing the testing um, pipeline that's enabled us to get more people to be tested, whereas two weeks ago in Michigan, there, there are a, an alarming and heartbreaking amount of people. I mean, I, I did an interview with CBS this morning today that talked about a, a man named Keith Gambrell who talks about members of his family going and trying to get tested and not getting tested. 
I mean, there are people in my in my life who that's happened to. And just to put this like all the way on the ground for you, I mean, I've lost 16 people in my life to COVID-19, including a cousin a day and a half ago. Oh and so, um, this is, so this is real for our community, the mortality of it. And so while this task force is seeking to put specific and direct interventions on the ground to deal with this in the immediate term, this is couched in a broader effort to address these disparities, that broader effort that started in our administration. During our first year, I led a tour on improving quality of life and health in cities called Thriving Cities that went to 19 cities across the state starting last summer. We established a task force on poverty that's looking at the multivariate impacts that fighting with persistent poverty has on people's lives and on communities. We established something called Healthy Moms, Healthy Babies in February that is specifically looking at the fact that black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women. And that medical bias is one of the primary drivers of that because, you know, bluntly, a lot of doctors respond differently to black women who say they're in pain than white women. So we're trying to address these things um, in the context of the pandemic, but also lay the groundwork for longer term work. And, and we believe that we can have an impact. And that's why we've assembled a pretty uh, diverse set of experts, epidemiologists, infectious disease experts, medical doctors, education professionals, faith leaders, uh, Reverend Solomon Kenlock from Triumph Church is a member of the um, task force. And, um, and we have education leaders from higher education, K-12 education, community colleges. We have labor represented. And this is the last one I'll say before I um, hit the shot clock here. Um, when we're talking about what could lead to a higher potential risk of exposure and infection. Um, I talked about our first responders, our grocers, our utility workers, our uh, nurses. More often than not, especially in Southeast Michigan, the people who work those jobs are people of color, they're lower income, and they're members of unions. So we have labor unions at the table because being respected and protected at work in this time, ensuring that your employers are carrying up their responsibilities to make provision for their employees to be safe, that they're not punishing people for staying home because they're sick or have symptoms or are worried that they've been exposed, that they have access to paid sick leave. I mean, all of these things are principles that should be true in the first place, but certainly need to be true now. And that's why we've expanded those to be possible in the context of this pandemic and are working to put in place protocol changes that will decrease the risk of exposure or the risk of uh, spreading the virus uh, for these people in these communities. That's a really helpful, particularly the last part you were saying about the um, providing the testing and the and the and the paid and the paid leave and, uh, and working through the unions of, of healthcare workers seems to be really really key. Uh, just to be not to to, uh, to offer an opinion as that's political rather than religious, but I mean, having been in politics before, I went into uh, my current uh, calling. Um, that that seems to be the the most obvious place to put the the pressure on. On, on the employers and also to actually make sure that the testing takes place and also to make sure that people are able to self-report safely and in a way that they're not gonna be injured economically because of this. Um, right. Representative Mnugin, do you wanna weigh in? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the, the things that the Lieutenant Governor just talked about, especially with bringing the right people to the table when we're having these conversations is going to make all the difference in terms of the outcomes. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, at least for our community, um, as I was mentioning before, the fine point that we've made on focusing on small businesses, um, in particular, these really local businesses that are operating in downtown Birmingham or in our surrounding um, in Bloomfield Township and et cetera, we've been hearing a ton from them 
um, just about the lack of access to the Paycheck Protection Program, some issues they've had with local banks. Um, and so I guess, you know, to put a to put another point on this, I would say um, continue reaching out to our office and continue reaching out to your senator's offices to get the resources you may need. Um, you know, one of the things that we've been really struggling with, even in our office, is and it's a frustration that all of us all share um, who've been trying to use the unemployment insurance agency. Um, just being, you know, I feel I feel for those employees. They are so incredibly overwhelmed by uh, just the influx of contacts that have happened. And so, you know, one of the things that we're trying to sort through in our office, in all of our offices, is just how um, we're able to streamline all those requests so we can get everyone the benefits they need. I saw there was a question in the chat that was particularly about, you know, getting people the access to unemployment benefits. Um, and we empathize and completely understand that this has been a really difficult thing where the system continues to crash. And it's a frustration that, um, it's a frustration that everyone is feeling right now. And obviously the times right right now are also already incredibly frustrating and adding this layer uh, where, um, you know, government is being, you know, at times um, slow to respond because the systems that we have are not built for times like these. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating and challenging for us as public servants. Um, and so I can't even imagine what it's uh, the frustration you feel on your end as the person trying to access these resources. Um, so that's that's just one thing I would say. Maybe it's not uh, necessarily about our about racial disparities. Um, although I will say, with regard to the testing issues, um, you know, I have uh, you know friends of mine, um, and, and sadly, you know, uh, my colleague Isaac Robinson passed away, and we weren't able. We we don't know whether it was from COVID. We assume that it was, but he wasn't able to be tested fast enough before he passed from the illness he passed from, and. Um, we have a candidate who's running for rep in the Rochester area who was turned away from getting a test because of his age. Um, he's, you know, a young man and they told him that this was just not that that the testing resources were not available for him. And so he spent a week, you know, self isolating and went through some he still is having some difficulty breathing. Um, and so we, we know that, you know, to the point that the lieutenant governor made ramping up testing and making it accessible to everyone is the point that we need to get at in order to get through this disease. It just, that's just where we have to be. And so, you know, going and incrementally um, making sure that our first responders are able to have access to tests and people who are most likely to be exposed is incredibly important, but it is my hope that we get to a point where we are able to expand testing in a way that is meaningful and allows us to return people to work um, and allows us to really understand um, how the disease has spread and um, we're able to make sure that everyone is getting the tests they need. Um, I, I, we are getting inundated with so many questions, uh, folks. We just have a couple of things that we, we probably do need to cover, but we're getting great questions from so many of you, um, and we're gonna we're gonna move towards them soon. And I actually uh, gratefully know many of the names here are are doctors who are working in in, in uh, directly in contact with with uh, COVID nineteen patients and in Detroit and other places. So we're gonna get to those questions. I do want to cover a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, is another factor. Um, the fact that, uh, particularly within Detroit, you had during the during the uh, the the bankruptcy, the Detroit Public uh, Detroit Health Department got disbanded and translated into a nonprofit, which then dropped the available uh, personnel in that non in in that organization down significantly, and then finally got retranslated into the Detroit, reconstituted as the Detroit Health Department. 
did that did that complete interruption and and disruption and um, uh, did that did that affect the ability of the city to care for its I mean, I, I don't see a, a scenario where that wouldn't have a deep impact. I mean, whenever uh, disinvestment occurs, um, disinvestment leads to destruction, um, period. And so um, we've seen these kinds of things on the state level. And I want to zoom out to another piece that I'm very concerned about. Um, the state of Michigan over the last, you know, 25 or 30 years has also significantly disinvested in our infrastructure to support people who need mental and behavioral health services that were, that were provided by the state. And that's a particular concern to me now because alongside the public health crisis that we're fighting and alongside the economic crisis that we're fighting, there is a significant mental and emotional um, hurricane that is coming upon all of our people. This is causing mental and emotional stresses that none of us have been prepared to cope with bluntly. And it's impacting people from all walks of life of all stripes from the, from the small business owner who's stressed out about putting her life savings into her work and not knowing if her, she'll be able to, to ride this out to my six year old daughter who came to me and asked my wife and I, if we were still going to have Christmas. And if we were gonna have my daughter, I have a 10 month old daughter and asking about baby Ruby's birthday party. And, you know, all of us are dealing with this in these unimaginable ways. And so one of the things that's been important to us as, as, as our administration is finding ways to give people the resources to cope with that. So as part of our federal disaster declaration application, uh, we lobbied to get crisis counseling covered by the federal government and we were granted that request. And so we now have established what we call a warm line from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services that people can call to be to talk to someone or be to, or to be connected with care to deal with these mental and emotional stresses, which are incredibly severe and impacting people all just all over the spectrum. Um, we also launched this kind of innovative partnership with this company called Headspace. They make uh, essentially a iPhone and Android app that enables people to practice uh, mindfulness meditation. And they've made some specific um, uh, exercises available to the people of Michigan for free at headspace.com slash MI, which is, um, I think, a pretty great partnership. And so we, I just, I just want to recognize that I, I use that as an example because um, when you disinvest, um, you never know when you're going to need to fully call on these resources. And by disinvesting in those resources, we weren't prepared to be able to deal with this avalanche. And I mean, let's take it even to the unemployment insurance system. Um, when you've had disinvestment in government technology, and now it needs to stand up in a way that is is unprecedented is not even a, a word to describe it. Like no unemployment insurance was designed for this many people to be unemployed at the same time. And so, but we don't have the infrastructure in place to respond to that. And that's why we've been working so, so you know, forcefully to try to add 600 people to answer the phones and to increase the website capacity on a temporary basis. Um, but this is this is tough, and um, I do believe though that 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 we can get through it because people are banding together in ways that I frankly find inspiring. Um, people are, you know, having each other's back and filling in for one another. We've had state uh, employees redeploy um, from depart other departments to help with unemployment. Um, just like you're seeing people step up outside of government, you're seeing people um, volunteer in safe ways to make sure that people have food or that volunteering to call somebody who can't get visitors, volunteering to write letters to veterans in our veterans homes who can't have visitors and all these kinds of things. So 
um, I think these are, are the moments that have really called out actually um, the best of our humanity. And it's something that I'm, I'm proud to have seen um, people in Michigan step up in this way. I need to, uh, what I'd like to do is to, to just make a quick connection there with a question that came in from a psychologist. Um, and he asked the question, uh, you know, obviously, you, as you named it, um, there's going to be a huge mental health uh, wake that comes out of this, you know, and um, what what can churches do to be a partner with uh, with the government on issues around mental health? Um, and, and, and how can we, how can we be a, a, a good faith partner in terms of referrals, but how might might we participate? So, I mean, I think that frankly, a lot of people are going to want to talk to their pastor first before they talk to the state. So I can imagine that your phones are, are, are ringing off the hook and you're getting text messages um, from people who, who need someone to talk to, whom they can trust, who they know loves and supports them. And that availability is going to be critical. So I would actually hope that your entire ministerial team um, is really available to serve people. All the folks who typically would be as part of the ministries that go visit the sick and shut in, um, hopefully they are available and on call to be able to speak with people who are going to need help during this time. I also think that um, church members should recruit from their congregation um, people who are able to, to, to be there and be just like um, a warm ear to listen to folks and, and to make that connection. You see, the thing that's ironic, you know, the irony of this social distancing is that I think it actually has revealed how connected we all really truly are. That's something that people of faith I believe understand, you know, we're one in the body of Christ. But I think this is being made plain for, for everybody that we really depend on one another. We really need one another. That human to human contact is a primal yearning. And so um, we miss that. We, we're, we're cleaving to that. And I believe that on the other side of this, we're going to value it much, much more. We're going to have much more substantive conversations. We're going to check in on one another more regularly. We're going to say, I love you a little more forcefully. And I think, you know, um, so, so any way that you can sort of help stand in that gap during this time, either as leaders or as uh, calling on members of your congregations to do the same, I think will be helpful. And as a state, like from, the, from the state government perspective, certainly um, uh, because you are eyes and ears and you know the people whom you serve, um, you can help us um, if people need to have uh, escalations in their care or escalations in those services, and we will be there to provide them. I, I, I want to just jump to one last thing, and then we're going to really try to open it up, and I'm going to try to uh, deal with as many questions as we have. I think, um, I think I'm going to trust uh, that we'll find our way through this. Um, there are some who have argued that there are cultural issues that are, are, are in terms of, of just culturally appropriate communication that was a significant problem uh, from the beginning. Uh, that that prevented um, the African American community to uh, to be able to 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 get aligned with the concerns around COVID nineteen, and um, what you know this is from Greg Bowens, who is the uh, head of the NAACP in Gross Point, and who is a writer and commentator. And his argument is that things like working with the community or developing culturally appropriate messaging. Or making sure that you know, the, the head of, uh, of, of of Michigan Department of Health and Human Services is is more upfront uh, as a as a person of color and a doctor who's giving good advice. Um, he gives about twelve different ways in which there have been some cultural challenges. And to that, I would also add another uh, interview that I did with um, uh, a 
a, a person who I respect who's a leader in the African-American community. And one of the things that she said culturally is that because of, of, of racism, um, that the African-American community tends to have a high level of affiliation, right? Part of the reason why the, 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 the black church is the incredible force that it is, is that level of affiliation is so high and that community is so important that it shores up and, and helps. But in this case, there were uh, that, that, that drive to come together, to sit by each other, which people do, um, that, that actually worked against um, taking the steps that need to be taken. Is, that, is there any, what is your view of that, that, that perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate that perspective, both of them, frankly, um, because the truth is, um, this is, this needs to be an all ideas on the table moment. And so um, certainly we have been working together with uh, a pretty broad cross section of the community to try to increase and improve how we're engaging in particularly vulnerable communities. So whether you're talking about the black community across the state, whether you're talking about migrant workers, whether you're talking about um, uh, undocumented immigrants, whether you're talking about um, first responders, I think there are, are lots of sort of specific and targeted ways that we need to engage communities in ways that we know will frankly take hold. And you know, in the, in the black community, it's kind of like the representative said about the Armenian community, we come together when stuff gets hard. Yeah. And so that being dangerous um, has made this a particularly challenging time because we don't we don't have that as a tool uh, because that puts us at risk. And I think, you know, perhaps when when this was less understood, um, that that may have made our community more vulnerable in the beginning. Um, and then the and then the characteristics of this virus and how it spreads and how it can spread for people who don't know it, they don't have symptoms. I think that also uh, how communicable it is, I think also was a big challenge. So I certainly welcome and appreciate uh, not only the ideas and suggestions and feedback, but the engagement of, of people like Greg to um, to put those ideas forward so that we can uh, work with them and that we can add those uh, to the plan, those that were not already part of it, um, to make sure that we are doing everything we can because we have lives to save. We want less people to die. We want less people to get infected and get exposed. And so um, I really um, believe that uh, we we can always improve and, and welcome everyone's engagement on that and, and bringing those ideas forward in good faith so we can work together to, for the betterment of uh, saving people's lives. Reverend Christian. Yeah, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit here. Uh, I certainly agree with everything that's been said. And I'm sure that if uh, Greg was here, he'd be able to clarify what you just said even further, because I really am not quite sure what he means by culturally appropriate communication. And uh, this attachment, I, I get it, but we're dying because we have higher rates of diabetes, cancer, heart disease, HIV and AIDS. We are dying because we uh, have liquor stores on uh, two liquor stores on every block and liquor licenses that aren't tied to restaurants and, and all of that floods the community and it's gonna lead to poor health. We're dying because your health is gonna be tied to your ec economic and, and social uh, uh, status. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's connected, you know, it's, we're dying because if your primary care physician is in the emergency room, 
then you're not getting the type of preventative care that will protect you. I don't know what they could have done. I mean, I feel like the governor and uh, health officials certainly put the information out there. I mean, it, it, if you have hip hop dancers dancing, uh, is, is COVID is dangerous, I don't think that's gonna make a lot of difference. And I think when you start to look at the distrust that African-Americans have with information like that and the health system, that is tied to a history of abuse, that is tied to a history of neglect, yeah. that is tied to um, the, the fact that uh, they, uh, uh, they really don't trust uh, the physicians, and that gets back to the, the medical bias issue. They, they, if, if, if you don't seem to care, then why should I care? And, and the reason why the church has, uh, has played a, a more significant role in mental health and things like that is because you've closed the mental health facilities. You've defunded the mental health facilities. And we've been complaining for years that when you start closing those hospitals and clinics and different things like that, those people flood our community. You can put a protective barrier up in, in, in communities that, that are more affluent, but, but those people are pouring back into our community, which further destabilizes it and further causes problems. The last thing I'll say is, when, when we start talking about solutions, I pray that they are gonna give the Lieutenant Governor the resources that they need, because this can't just be an analysis. We've had enough analysis. And, and what was proven is that you, you know, I don't I want some of you saying you. Uh, no, it's all right, it's, it's fine, proven, it's fine. Not it's, you, yeah. but what is proven is people know that these disparities exist. Don't waste my time arguing whether racism is real and whether classism is real and all of that. Let, let's be let's understand and then let's take it from there because if there is inequality, then the solution must be unequally applied. So the stimulus checks go out to everybody and we all get the, the same amount of money or there's very little uh, dif differentiation between uh, who gets what. But a lot of us don't need those stimulus checks. We should double up on those who really need it. Uh, when you start talking about, uh, uh, and the, the small business loans, you're disqualified if you're on parole. I think you're disqualified if you were recently incarcerated, something like that. I know if you're under indictment and whatnot, but the people who need the money the most, they don't get it. But yet we wanna sit up here and talk about inequity. See, but if I were to sit up here and talk about affirmative action, if I were to sit up here and dare say reparations, you know, people would say, well, you know, Reverend, you're going too far. Well, racism has gone too far. Classism has gone too far. Xenophobia has gone too far. The, the types of prejudice and bias that we have allowed to wreak havoc in our society is finally coming back to haunt us. Uh, it is the proverbial chickens coming home to roost. And we've got to deal with it, face it, and unequally apply a remedy 
because if the if if a if a certain group in society is is facing a, an unequal burden, then you've got to apply the remedy just like the problem is being applied, or we're going to be right back where we started from. And let me tell you something: if if we're not all healthy, then then nobody's going to be healthy. And, and I'm not even going to talk about the digital divide. Our daughters are in private school, Bill. Yeah, there's they have missed a beat. They just hit a switch, and uh, they're going to school every day. They are uh, going to finish out the school year, and uh, but but the Detroit public school kids uh, are, are not able to do that because they have not had the resources that they need to act uh, adequately uh, integrate technology into the curriculum. Now we've got to face these problems and we've got to, but you know, try to explain that to somebody who doesn't live in Wayne County, right? But, but an undereducated uh, or a non-educated young person, you, you don't want to meet them in a dark alley if they have uh, gone astray. And not all of our kids go astray, most go right, but it only takes one to, to ruin your day. Uh, you don't want to meet the underemployed or the unemployed uh, uh, who have been pushed to the margins of society. You, you know, that kind of uh, existence causes bitterness and apathy. And that's really what is driving, that kind of brings back to the original point, and that's where I'll end. That is driving the, uh, the, the, the lack of or, or the slowness in the response of uh, your, your everyday citizens uh, in, in responding to uh, uh, the COVID-19. Uh, I, I don't know what culturally appropriate. Well, as you know, I, I'll always be a student. I'll be, always be a student and never a teacher on these matters, right? But, but I will say, I, I mean, that was, uh, that is kind of Greg's position, but what I see you articulating that's different, that's incredibly important, is that it's not, um, it, it, the issues are, are that we are, we are not investing in the youth and in the, in, the, in the communities in ways that we have. And we've been overly permissive about other things like um, liquor stores, which are, which are prevalent throughout Detroit. And you're saying that there's been, there's been a, a, a kind of weird science that's been placed to this in which people have been uh, allowed to have as many liquor stores as they want, but there's no encouragement to put in a grocery store. Now, I will say in defense of some of the people who are purveyors of liquor stores, uh, for many people who are facing a food desert, that's where they get their food, as you know, as, as well as I do. But having said that, it's not a good, it's not a good solution to that problem either. So, I mean, I, I think what you're, you know, I feel that you're, you're raising some really important issues, uh, uh, Christian. So thank you for doing that. And, 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 I, and I do see that um, particularly everything that you've said um, uh, goes with the grain of how um, uh, everything I've studied about African-Americans in healthcare, because oftentimes the medicalization of racism, uh, it, 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 it is found in many, many contexts. So I think you're absolutely right. So. Um, I want to go to the questions, if that's okay, unless I want to, before I go to the questions, we're at 810, I think we should start to pick things, unless, Bishop, is there anything you want to add as a, okay, I'm going to keep us moving, and I, 
I want to thank uh, so many of you have written incredibly powerful uh, questions here. And I'm going to try to do my best. And I ask your permission and, and forgiveness ahead of time. Um, you know, one, uh, one person who has written is a doctor, uh, Dr. Fernander. Um, and he said this, Michigan has been on the cutting edge of technology and engineering for generations. The automotive industry benefits from the factory labor of many of the African-American community. Can you ask the representatives if they feel the large manufacturers could or should be doing more in these communities? Um, yeah, I'll start. So I, I actually think that 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 kind of ingenuity and manufacturing muscle uh, that has driven the state of Michigan and frankly the whole Midwest for generations um, has has been working to step up in the context of this pandemic. You've had Ford and General Motors um, retool their their production lines to make ventilators and ventilator components and face shields um, for our, our medical professionals and our first responders. And I think think that is important. Having said that, I think what the question is really looking at is the kinds of investments that companies make in the communities from which their, their employees emerge from. And I think certainly um, this kind of call to responsibility of these corporate actors is something that is very present in this moment. And we've seen Michigan businesses, large and small, really step up uh, to answer that call, whether it's you know uh, craft breweries and distilleries making hand sanitizer, to um, people who make clothes, switching up and making medical gowns, to uh, to making surgical masks and, and everything in between. I've seen business owners try to um, work to serve one another as well as serving the public during this time. Um, and so I, I'm I'm proud of how uh, some of the members, uh, some of these business leaders are, are are stepping up to try to do the right thing. Certainly, can more happen? I think that's always possible. I think it's always possible to dig a little deeper. And so I, I appreciate it and, and, and agree with that challenge to call for all of us to look inside ourselves and look inside our institutions and think what more can we pull out so that we can serve more people, that we can help more people in this time of need that is deeper than any need that we've ever addressed. And um, I, I think if we are always asking ourselves that question and challenging ourselves in that way, I think we can continue to find answers. I'm yeah, and I think to follow up on that, I just um, you know, seeing in the um, in the news the layoffs that have come with some of our healthcare facilities because things have shifted in ways that they hadn't anticipated. And you know, I'm thinking a lot about um, in our communities how a lot of the workers who are being uh, laid off in these healthcare facilities, a lot of them are women, and a lot of them are African American, given the uh, the kinds of layoffs that are coming. And um, it's an incredibly frustrating uh, thing for me to see. Um, and I'm sure it's equally as frustrating for the Lieutenant Governor, uh, knowing that there are these challenges and that we do have to start making these shifts, um, but knowing that we are continually asking the same group of people to step up time and time again and take a cut or take, uh, take a back seat or you know, give up a little bit of their paycheck or give whatever it is, like take a cut here or there. We ask the same people to do that constantly. Um, and at some point, we are going to have to, as leaders, um, you know, really dig deep and understand that this, this can't go on like this any longer. And I think, you know, to your point about the manufacturing and whether companies need to step up, you know, the answer is absolutely yes. And, you know, one of the things that for me, um, I am continually trying to do in our community 
is make connections between some of these corporations. For example, a lot of these tech companies are doing very well right now because we are all forced to be using their products. Um, and so we have um, some really uh, large companies in Michigan um, that are open to being generous donors to make sure that our community members are able to get the resources that they need. Um, what is obviously very frustrating is we shouldn't have to rely on donations for people to have access to what they need. But if that's the gap that we're going to fill right now, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, and so, you know, there are some um, companies that are doing their part and they are stepping up. Obviously, as the Lieutenant Governor said, I think there's more that can be done. Um, just to start to pick up on this, there's been a couple of questions that have been asking um, about what role the faith communities can play in this. And, and you know, Bishop has been incredibly prophetic and wonderful in, um, in, the, in the initiative that she has around food insecurity, which uh, my church is supporting. Um, we also have our own uh, $122,000 um, commitment to COVID-19 relief, which is gonna be covering um, things like food insecurity, economic insecurity, the cost of housing for people who need to shelter in place. But the thing that I think that everybody is trying to articulate here that is so hard to do because of the standard way we, in which we understand the, 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 the division of labor between the, the church and the state is what can we do besides meet the needs of a society, right? Because right, right, right now what Bishop and, and what Reverend Adams and I are doing and our various congregations are doing is we're kind of keeping the social structures in place. In fact, what's happened in Detroit in particular is faith communities and volunteerism have actually stepped in to provide much of the social safety net. But what's, what's happening is the dam is cracking. And, and basically, people like us are running around and putting our fingers in the dam to try to keep it from cracking. But, but it seems that, I gotta tell you, that's exhausting. And what can we do to actually partner to move the needle a little bit on, on these issues of, of certainly of inequity and, and, and uh, racial disparities? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and and I, I hear that, that that is, that is hard work, that is emotional labor. Um, in addition to the to the physical work, and and I, I appreciate and commend everybody for really stepping up and, and standing tall in this moment. Um, you know, I think one of the things that has been made visible or or laid plain for a lot of people is, in the context of this emergency, like we have taken some extraordinary action to extend extend protections and provisions to people that we should really think about whether that should just be the case. Period. You know, um, I'll use an example of uh, things like paid sick leave. Like people should just have paid sick leave. Like the fact that that was even something we had to establish is really problematic. And there are political reasons for that, specifically that happened in 2018 that I'm not gonna go into right now. But nevertheless, like um, the need for that is clear. And, 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 you know, you can't like predict when you're gonna need to, be, need to use sick leave. So we should have that available to people in Michigan and in America. Um, and so I think that's just is one example of the fact that we, I think this is going to cause a real reevaluation um, of uh, the provisions that we have for people um, that are going to need to be available when people, you know, fall upon a tough time. And, you know, things like expanding access to unemployment insurance for people who are 1099 workers or gig economy workers or self-employed. 
Um, that is an unprecedented expansion. And we've done that. Uh, Michigan is one of the few states that's worked out a, a deal with the Department of Labor at the federal level to enable that for people in Michigan. Um, we should consider making that just our policy. So I think, um, I think one of the things that, that, that faith leaders and, and church, church goers can do is to help to advocate for that, create the help to create the, the you know the political space for us to have that conversation about, you know, what do we take from this pandemic, and keep with us going forward. We know it's going to have. I talked about the mental and emotional sort of stressors impact, but this is going to have societal impact. I mean, you think about people, um, you know, I was in college on 9/11, or people who lived through the depression, like that impacted the way they saw the world, the way they thought about policy, the way they thought about power. I think that's going to be true uh, for those of us who are living through and leading through this pandemic. And I hope that we learn the right lessons. And I hope that we understand that, that you know, we need to be there for people and be there for one another. And that government has a role to play in that. And everyone has a role to advocate to make sure that we make that possible. I think for too, I really think for too long, mainline Protestant denominations have shied away from um, understanding that gospel values in a democratic society get enacted through political um, activity. Um, and I'm not saying go against 501c3, not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we have values that need to be enacted and, um, and that needs to happen in a legislative manner. And so I think advocating not for democratic or Republican values, but to say, here are the clear gospel values. And this goes, plays in with, um, with Reverend Adams talking about like the value of love. And what does that love then look for? It's, it's not something along the lines of charity. Um, this is about fairness. This is about um, each of us mattering and that we don't have, as um, the theologian Kelly Brown Douglas talks about, expendable classes. You know, mm -hmm. we, we don't have people that just get set over here because other people happen to have enough money to hide behind a screen. It, it's, not, it's not fair. Um, and I think that people of faith understand when they see something that's not fair and that what we need to go is the next step is to then say, how are we going to exert um, the, um, gather the groups of people to exert the changes that cause the legislative changes? Um, and and, and, and that's, that's my sense. I think we've shied away from that. I think it's been to our detriment. Yeah, and, that, and I just to add also, not only the legislative, but you know, when I go down in Detroit, I constantly run into people who are running community development or, uh, organizations. And so they're much, and one of the things to speak to uh, Reverend Christian's um, father's legacy at Hartford Memorial Baptist Church is they, that church took a lead in, in development um, in, in Detroit. They actually invested in Detroit and they were willing to, they were willing to actually um, uh, create businesses and create uh, and, and become and become landlords and 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 those are the, those that kind of investment um, is something that seems to be over uh, you know overdue for the mainline church. I mean, entrepreneurial, economic. I mean, that's how you make the changes, right? And to use gifts and talents that we have to make those changes so that it's not this just giving bits. 
this is this this causes this is a cause for a jubilee year this is a whole reworking and and it's going to need the political will to for people to decide that they're going to to do that because it's what folks of faith i think do um we have a lot of good questions about the level of support that people are receiving through unemployment, the $600 uh, extra that you get in addition to your normal unemployment. There are a lot of people that are asking really nuts and bolts questions. And uh, perhaps what's best for us to handle those as we as our time is short, is, to, is, is there a, is there a, a quick uh, FAQ that either of you can point us in the direction of so that people can understand, you know, one of the things that I think that, um, you know, just to give an example, my mother uh, said to me, well, relax, everybody's going to be fine. They're going to get $1,000. I was like, well, mom, that goes really quickly. My mom's in her mid 80s. I mean, really, <laughs> you have no idea how quickly that goes. That's a lot of money. It's not going to cover anything. That's not going to cover anything. Right. And, and, uh, and, and so is, I mean, and yet, you know, a wonderful person, mother. Yeah. How, where does, where do I send someone like my mom to go to, to just get some of the answers on the actual affordability of, of life and, 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 and what this, how much this particular gift is going to give to people uh, to get anywhere. Representative, you want to start and I'll, I'll come in after you. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's a really, I would say it's a, a tough question because there are so many different resources that exist for people to sort of take stock of, um, take stock of their expenses and how these different uh, parts of the CARES Act and different parts of our government are stepping in to sort of uh, fill those gaps. And I guess that's sort of the, the way that I'm explaining this sort of represents a general issue we have, which is there isn't, there isn't like a one-stop shop place for people. So it makes this incredibly difficult to navigate. Um, the thing I will say is, I mean, I, at the top of this, I said, reach out to our office, reach out to um, your senator, your state senator's office, and they will help you navigate each individual challenge. The first thing I would say is, if you haven't, if you are a homeowner, I mean, you haven't spoken to your bank about your mortgage, um, and you feel that there may be an issue with that, have those conversations now before there's a problem. Um, that is something that when we, um, you know, when I came into office, I had a bunch of conversations with people from the banking industry or from um, the you know medical field, you know everybody comes through and sort of introduces themselves. And one of the first things that folks from, particularly from community credit union side, was in order to keep people in their homes, it's really important that we have those conversations very early. So that's really really important. Um, the second thing is um, the Michigan.gov/coronavirus website has a ton of FAQ documents for um, how to navigate some of our resources that we have as a state. Um, and those can be, you know, challenging and frustrating to deal with. So I would say the third thing is, again, reach out to our office so we can help you navigate that space. I really appreciate that. We are moving towards five minutes left, and uh, I cannot believe it. This has been <laughs> such an incredibly important conversation. I feel like we should just all get a drink of water, come back, and just keep going. <laughs> and I think many people would still stay with us because there are so many great questions. And, and uh, I want to say to everybody who sat in on this, Thank you so much for being here. I want to close by asking some uh, uh, each of us uh, to very um, uh, succinctly um, answer the question, what gives you hope right now? All right, so I, I said it a little earlier, but it is worth repeating. Um, again, the irony of social distancing is that it reminds us 
how connected we are. It magnifies how important our relationships are, how reliant we are upon one another, how the degree to which the individual choices that we make, the actions that we take, how they directly impact our community's collective well-being. And so um, when we're on the other side of this, I am so hopeful about the new practices and relationship building and management that we all will come equipped with. We'll call more often. We'll, <laughs> there'll be a lot more video chatting for face-to-face. -face. Um, we will uh, you know, hug each other a little tighter. We will um, have deeper, more thoughtful conversations. We will tell people how we feel. We will say, I love you. Um, we'll break bread and we will laugh harder. I mean, I just think all of this will be different and deeper um, as a result of us coming through and surviving this pandemic. And, and I think that will be one way, not only to honor those who, who we've lost during this, but also to, to, to value those who are still here. And so that, um, I think so much beauty will come from that. I think so much uh, will come from that as far as new partnerships and innovations that will lead to you know, innovations in our relationships as well as innovations in our economy. I think new business models will be dreamed of during this time. I think new inventions will come to bear in this time. Um, and so I am very hopeful because you know, the people of the state of Michigan, our history is building something when we thought there was only blight. Our history is innovating out of what others have thrown away. Um, our spirit, our DNA is built up in taking the things um, that are here for us, that are left here and making something beautiful and magnificent and powerful from it. And so I think that that is gonna be Michigan's response to this pandemic. And, and I look forward to that. Um, that is what is gonna meet us on the other side here. Um, and and I, I know that I'm hopeful about that future. When I, I hope that uh, at one point you'll come back and do a webinar on technology and social justice, because I think one of the things that you bring to this table that is special is your background in technology um, and, that, and the way that that can facilitate connectivity. Um, let's go to Representative Mnugin. I'll be really brief. Um, mine is a more of a more tangible, although I every time the Lieutenant Governor speaks, I am always envious of his uh, oratory skills. Um, but I will say one of the things that has given me hope is seeing uh, members of our community step up in all kinds of ways that I, I, I'm, even I didn't expect uh, were possible. Um, one group in particular, uh, Flag Metro Detroit, uh, the Frontline Appreciation Group, um, was started by a handful of women in Bloomfield Township and um, has since raised uh, several uh, hundred thousand dollars for uh, feeding frontline workers at uh, hospitals across Metro Detroit. And in concert with that, what I thought was really awesome about what they were doing is they partnered with small businesses um, in particular, like I used to flip burgers at Hunter House and they've had Hunter House deliver burgers to uh, nurses and, uh, and doctors in, uh, in Beaumont and Troy, as well as uh, in Royal Oak. And, and I'm seeing the ingenuity of having a, and, and they partnered with the St. Clair Community Foundation and the ingenuity that these women had where they partnered with um, existing organizations and existing businesses to deliver things that people needed. Um, and so I thought that was really cool. And um, I, you know, it's one of those things that really um, moved me to see that that was something that developed just organically in our community. Well, and I, we actually have been in touch with them and supporting them. We gave a $19,000 gift to them uh, over Easter because That's of the amazing. incredible work they did. Yeah. 
Um, let's let's uh, let's go with with uh, Bishop Perry. Um, I think what gives me hope is the number of people whose hearts are breaking, hmm. breaking open, um, because I think when we share a collective grief, there is a um, a bonding over that 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 is not easily forgotten. Mm. And, and I think when we have that breaking open of, of grief, there's, there's a connection. And I think there's also this co complete and utter understanding that we cannot pull this off by ourselves. And so I think there is a lot um, that in many, many, many places, there is an absence of arrogance that is filled with compassion and courage and a real looking towards um towards god um and and toward our neighbors and i don't think any of us will ever be the same again and that um that gives me a deep abiding hope that's ex that's exciting thank you and that, yeah I, I appreciate that and let's turn right to to reverend adams Reverend Christian. Uh, this whole evening has given me optimism because the dialogue has been substantive and it has been broad. Too many uh, political conversations are politically motivated. And in the church, oftentimes we major in the minor. We're so concerned about putting up flashy uh, uh, show, uh, not shows, but uh, you understand, presentations uh, that uh, oftentimes we, we miss the weightier matters uh, that we are discussing and engaging tonight. Uh, and particularly for the Lieutenant Governor being present with us, it has deepened our discussion. It has lended this meeting a, another level of importance and credibility because uh, he has a lot uh, to do and a lot on his plate. Uh, and uh, he is at, at the center of this. And uh, indeed, uh, all of our uh, panelists, uh, you, you've just really encouraged your brother tonight uh, with all that you're doing in Lansing and all that you're doing in the Episcopal Episcopacy and all that Bill you're doing. Let me tell you something about Bill. He gives me optimism all the time because if we're ever going to arrive at the day that we all pray and hope for, we need people like him. He, it, it, we all got to work together and we all have to see our shared interest. And it's not just race and class, it's uh, gender, uh, civic protection, civic participation, uh, civil liberties, uh, gender, what, whatever the issue, uh, Bill is a, is a courageous man and willing to take it on. And a lot of people are willing but not able. Uh, they're ready but they're not prepared. But Bill is a first class theologian he is a top-notch administrator, and he has a tireless work ethic. And those who know him know that I am not exaggerating in anything that I said. 
But Representative, you give me optimism. Bishop, you give me optimism. Bill, you give me optimism. And everybody who has participated, and I want to especially thank the Lieutenant Governor and his religious uh, and spiritual attache, uh, Dion. Uh, we all call him Dion. It's like Michael Jordan. He doesn't need a last name. Uh, he's called Mike LeBron, Kobe. You know, everybody, Dion has uh, done an amazing job at uh, keeping <laughs> us uh, kind of connected and abreast of uh, the conversations that are going on in the governor's mansion. So uh, thanks to uh, everybody uh, and love you all. You bring me hope. Well, uh, Reverend Christian, you know that you are my one of my dear, dear, dear friends in Christ. And I am so grateful for you every day. And you've lifted me up when I needed lifting up. So thank you for, for being that there for me. And, um, and I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. Um, and I want to say to Representative Mnugin, thank you so much for making time to be here. It's really, I really enjoy our conversations and I'm grateful for you. And, and to the Lieutenant Governor, you know, this is the, the second time you came to something I, I was at, but this time I got to invite you. I've watched you do incredible work in this state and I'm so grateful for the, your availability on this and also your passion for this and for your, your incredible commitment to these, these, um, uh, these incredible, these issues that need to be addressed. And, um, so I'm grateful for you. And, um, I also, what gives me hope just to turn before I go to the Bishop to ask her to pray, what gives me hope is, uh, I have a bit of history. I'm a historian a little bit. And, uh, you know, the, you did, you did not have a, a social safety net in Britain until you had the battle of Britain. Um, and it was when the British populace was brought together and had to cover, you know, hold themselves together in, in tube stations and ride out the bombings that they suddenly realized that they had a lot in common. And uh, it was from there that you had not only, you know, five day work weeks, not only the child labor laws, it's not only all, the National Health Service, uh, uh, the UK came out of that experience understanding themselves as a whole people. And my hope and prayer is that we see ourselves as a whole people again. Um, that's my, that's what gives me hope. Um, so uh, uh, Bishop, thank you so much for being here. You're my hero. Um, would you please, um, would you please close us in prayer? I don't know if I've really been around long enough, Bill, to be a hero, but well, thank that's, you. It's, it's, it's the shortness of involvement that helps it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's let, let us pray. I'm going to take this from the Book of Common Prayer. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Thank you. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. Give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted and shield the joyous, all for your love's sake. Amen. Please tune in next week. We'll be having Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist, and a wonderful, and Angela Dillard of the University of Michigan. We're going to continue to work on these issues. I want to thank again, finally, Lieutenant Governor, for making time and for Representative Nugian for being the wonderful person she is. And thank you all for hanging in there. This has been a full discussion, but there are some more than three quarters of you stayed behind, which means we did something right. 
at least gave you something to think about tonight. God bless you all. Good night. Thank Good night. you. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.